Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast all about early stage web developers and the mentors and teachers that help them along the way. Welcome, Andres, to the Mycelium Network Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. It's a huge pleasure. Um, it's been a long time in the making. We've discussed and gone back and forth and back and forth over Polywork, and finally we found a day in time that works for everybody. <laughs> so I'm glad. Yeah, business trips, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the holidays and everything. Mm-hmm. So um, to start off with, can you tell us, I know you, you mentioned in, in before we started that this is most probably the most uncomfortable question of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get that one out of the way. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, your career, and then, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, so I'm Andres. I'm a software engineer. Currently, I'm a R&D software developer at uh, Encompass Technologies. Uh, so basically, it's a be- uh, alcoholic beverage software as a service um, where essentially we, we help all three tiers of the U.S. Distrib- um, alcohol distribution system. So whether that's people who make beer, uh, people who make who distribute beer and then people who sell beer and obviously other wines, spirits, etc. Um, so I handle a lot of integrations with a database called uh, DSD Link, where it's got global product data, global customer data throughout the entire Encompass network. Um, so then the as we get more partners and stuff like that on, we I usually handle a lot of the integrations and stuff like that. Um, in terms of outside of work, um, been doing programming software development for about four or five years now. Um, Like when I'm not programming and stuff, I I love uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, uh, You know, I I play around with some tarot every now and then, and then also tattoos and uh, homebrewing mead actually. Um, So in general, um, just like to jump around to a whole bunch of different hobbies. My partner keeps me uh, plenty busy. <laughs> like she's just like, Oh, this is a great idea. We should go and try this. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Um, so kind of like all over the place, but those are the main things that I usually am found doing. That sounds great. So um, can you explain a bit about what mead is and what the brewing process involves? Uh, yeah. So, uh, with mead, um, a lot of people like to equate it to honey wine. Um, so essentially the main primary ingredient that you're fermenting is honey. Um, and the yeasts consume that honey. Um, usually there's like a couple steps where you go through primary fermentation and then you rack it into a separate container and secondary fermentation, um, you know, essentially all you're doing is having the yeast consume those, uh, different, um, sugars Mm -hmm. and, uh, with honey, it creates a unique flavor, um, that my partner and I really like where, uh, you know, it's a little bit sweeter and it's more, um, depending on the type of honey that you use and type of yeast, it will likely be a lot closer to a white wine, um, like a sweeter, maybe like a Pinot Grigio, Mm -hmm. um, And in general, it's been a lot of fun. We've done a whole bunch of different uh, small batches of like a gallon. Uh, one of the ones that uh, we're really proud of is one that we call the May Queen, which is basically like uh, blood oranges, um, lemon zest, um, vanilla, and a couple more other flavors with some really high quality alpine honey from up here in Colorado. Oh, wow. um, 
and you'd be surprised how much good honey makes a difference. Like if you just yeah, go to yeah, yeah. the supermarket and um, drop like honey that you pick up at the supermarket, that obviously that will get you there. But mm-hmm. um, we we like to do smaller batches with higher quality ingredients, and generally we just do it for ourselves and a couple of family members. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to just be able to experiment with the different uh, ingredients and see how the yeast takes it and creates these different flavors. Yeah, super cool. Um, we, yeah, honey, it, it makes a big difference. You get the real stuff, uh, not not, mm-hmm. uh, not the mix, the, the half and half that you often get it at the supermarket. Um, yeah. We have a, uh, a little honey company about, um, about 10 kilometers from where I stay. And like when we buy honey from them, you immediately notice the difference. Like I, I can use that in my coffee and it tastes great. Where as if you use the honey from the supermarket, it's like, eh, I'm not too sure about this. It's doubly so with mead because the, the yeast take on a lot of those flavors or off flavors as well. Uh-huh. So like if they don't have as much, uh, you know, like real sugars and stuff to consume, it's a lot harder for them to make a a, a flavor that is actually pleasant um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different variables that go into obviously with like brewing in general like you know you you could create some off flavors with uh certain ingredients so it's just a huge balancing act but to your point on like the coffee and stuff like you you can immediately tell the difference yeah for sure that's fascinating yeah i can imagine how that can become a, a really interesting hobby so it leads into my second question that i kind of had because i i I picked this up when I read some stuff in your, um, I can't remember if it was LinkedIn or if it was Polywork, but, um, where you're clearly enthusiastic about beer, I think specifically, but maybe other, other alcohol variants as well. But more than that, the, this idea that it brings people together, it forms community. Um, <clears throat> so I'm curious, like the Mycelium Network podcast is part of a larger, community around early stage developers and um so obviously community is very important to us and to me um so i wonder what gets you excited about community why are you so excited about this whole idea of of beer and then the beer forming this community bringing people together what is it about that stuff that makes you excited yeah so i will say a lot of that has been kind of my exposure to the beverage industry with uh encompass uh which I'm really appreciative of because it really opened my eyes to just how much work goes behind the scenes to get a beer on your table um, or a wine or whatever the case may be. Like, you know, the, the, the amount of work and the amount of talent that goes into it to, to get a beer into the distributor and then go from the distributor to the retailer and then be able to, to sell that to you. Like there's a lot of work behind the scenes that goes into it. And it, all of that is people who are extremely talented, extremely passionate about the beer. Um, well, the beverages that they sell, uh, I keep on saying beer, but realistically it's so much more than that. Um, and like really the the more i got exposed to it the more i realized just how much of it is community really like whether you are making beer distributing beer uh or selling it like there is a community that kind of uh revolves around it like you know there's so many different little neighborhoods and even just in the united states but worldwide where uh you know there's a liquor store somewhere in that community and that 
you know, whenever there's a party, there's something like that. Usually you're going and grabbing beer. You're going and grabbing some wine. You're grabbing some cider. It's something that you don't necessarily think about. Uh, but it's, uh, it's what it's used for, you know, like it's used for celebrations. It's used for parties. It's used for, you know, things that bring people together and things that we can celebrate together. Um, that's one thing that I really realized as I started working in the beverage industry with this software, that it's just such an amazing community. And the more you engage with it, the more you get out of it, you know, like people are always willing to talk to you about, uh, brewing, like regardless of what kind of brewing it is, like, you know, you can get along with somebody who has only ever brewed beer in their life. Like if you just say, Hey, like I do cider, I do mead, I do, like this other weird thing that I decided to ferment this very specific plant or something like that. Um, you know, like at the very least you have that kind of common bond where you're going and and trying to make something new and pleasant. That's like at the end of the day, you're, you're sharing that with somebody, right? You're not necessarily just sitting around doing that by yourself. Like at least you've got a partner, you've got some friends that you want to share that with. Um, even if that's online, um, you know, there, there's so much to it that is just community that people don't necessarily realize. So for me, that's really the, the excitement aspect of it where I, I love being contributing to that community. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's such a big component of what, of the human experience, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's just been, you know, alcohol fermented beverages have been around as long as you can probably remember. Um, so it's, it's something that we sometimes take for granted, but it's, it's a valuable part of what makes a community. Yeah. Agreed. And I think, um, there's parallels to be drawn there. Excuse me. Um, to software. I mean, if you build, if you write a little, uh, library or a little tool or something, it's always great to have a community to go to and to say, hey, look at this thing I made. And people are like, ah, that's really cool. And, you know, you get that feedback and you get that, like, even when people tell you, oh, you know what, there's this way that you can make this even better. I think it's the same thing when it comes to to brewing. Like, if you share your brewing recipe, somebody might say, you know what, I did something similar and I did this little difference and it made such a big, like you have this experience with these different honeys. And that, you know, having the real deal coming from like a craft place or something is so much better than the honey you get at the supermarket market. Like you might get somebody in the community who says, I'm making me, but I just can't quite get there. And you say, what honey are you using? And they're like, oh, I'm using this thing from this place. And you're like, you should try and get it from a local farmer or something like somebody that works with bees because that's going to make all the difference. I think that knowledge sharing is a big part of it as well. Yeah, I'll give another example on that. It's like the usage of what kind of parts of the lemon to use in in like a meat or something like that. Because then a, a lot of times the acidity of things like lemons and stuff may be uh, adverse towards yeast, uh, depending on the uh, other things that you put in there. You can, you can do stuff like uh, like add lipids to the uh, to the yeast so that then it kind of strengthens their cellular walls. We're getting way into the very specifics there, but like, you know, I have a lot of good friends that are, uh, fermentation science majors, which I didn't know was a thing until I got to encompass, um, where they kind of gave me that kind of, uh, feedback where 
like, hey, if you're trying to use more like acidic, like less than ideal flavors that would be great for us to, to consume, but not necessarily ideal for the yeast to live in and uh, produce alcohol in, um, you know, you could potentially uh, like add some additional things to like strengthen the yeast and kind of, uh, you know, build up their tolerance, so to speak. And like, there's different parts of the lemon, even like we, we use like the pith and other parts of it instead of just straight up the lemon pieces, Mm -hmm. uh, where Mm -hmm. you still get that kind of lemon flavor without necessarily introducing as much of the acidity. Yeah. So yeah, I I mean, that, that is, it sounds very similar to cooking, like also knowing like what parts of the, uh, of the vegetable or fruit or whatever spice to use um, and how much and when you when you add it to the mix and all that kind of stuff um, there's so many parallels between all these things and just community and the fact that we're social creatures and we, we seek out this this like um, communion around things that we're interested in um, and that we find so oh yeah 100 from all of this so um with that in mind there's 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 the other side of the coin where it's um, introducing different flavors can sometimes be a little tricky, like you just mentioned. And maybe we can draw a very strange uh, <laughs> parallel again here between that and introducing diversity into the workplace. Um, I think everybody's acknowledged that it's a good thing at it's fascinating that it took us time to realize that it seems like one of those like um, more obvious things that the more differences of opinion and the more differences of background and culture you have the better your product will be um, you know it doesn't matter what uh, industry you're targeting I think in general it's 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 always a good idea um, but it's taken it's taken a while and I think the tech industry maybe have taken a bit longer than others Um but it's getting there. It's getting better. But I've spoken to a um, a female guest previously uh, who came from Mexico to the U.S. and like she spoke a lot about like the tensions and struggles she's found while in Mexico because of the cultural differences um, where women wasn't really seen as somebody that would you know go into the tech industry um, or even science for that matter. Um, but for her, she was lucky, and her parents was not of that thought um so they actually encouraged her to pursue it and then other challenges she faced when she then moved to the united states um and you've raised a whole bunch of points about this so i don't want to talk about it too much i just wanted to give some context around that and then have you just speak to this a little bit because i know that you you have been affected by this maybe on a more implicit uh, rather than explicit um situations but if you want to talk about that if just the idea of adding more ingredients adding more diversity to to the mix um, and what the potential problems there could be and how we can or everybody can work together to make this not such a struggle that it's actually something we celebrate right um so i guess i'll i'll start with kind of my own experiences leading up to officially kind of being in the tech industry and, and studying tech. Um, so, uh, I, I mentioned this in our kind of discussions on polywork, but, um, I'm Puerto Rican. My parents are Puerto Rican and, uh, you know, kind of similar to the guest you mentioned, um, you know, being Hispanic has kind of its challenges in the U S uh, depending on the area. 
Um, you know, a lot of times, especially, uh, my dad is in the army, uh, still is. Um, and he's kind of, we moved around a whole bunch. Uh, I've lived around in a whole bunch of places and sometimes it's more implicit bias depending on the kind of people that are kind of circulating in the military space. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, very much explicit, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and those experiences aren't necessarily great, but they do certainly frame the, the perspective of like, Hey, this is, you know, it's not, it's not the same to be, uh, you know, Hispanic in the United States, um, as it is to just wake up and be, you know, I, I suppose the the term that they would likely use is from the United States. Even though Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, a lot of times people would talk to me as if I wasn't part of the U.S. or like that, you know, I wasn't a U.S. citizen and I should go back to my own country. And it's like, okay, I'm I'm here. Like, you know, like I'm I'm here. I'm ready to to do this. I'm ready to contribute. Um, so that's been kind of challenging um my dad always liked to say you know uh when when it comes to that like sometimes it's it's just a difference of like hey i'm not my my last name's sepulveda like my last name's not smith or johnson or something like that and and then that's not to to exclude anybody that's just to put a, a frame of reference of like hey sometimes people will perceive you differently like because of where you come from, what, what kind of culture you bring to the table. Um, and so that was a lot of my, my time growing up. Um, like I moved around a whole bunch. I lived in Korea for six years, um, and then lived in uh, Hawaii for another six terrible places to live. Um, and from there, uh, went into tech, uh, kind of as studying, um, computer science and then kind of taking on, uh, jobs either in the university or like internships and stuff like that from there. Um, I will say definitely from that point on, it went from more of a explicit to an implicit, uh, bias where people aren't necessarily going and outright saying, Oh yeah, go back to your country, but maybe they'll go and say something that's kind of like off that makes you feel weird. And it's like, why does that make me feel weird? Like, you know, where, where is that coming from? And where is this person, you know, do they, do they know that this makes me feel weird? Like, um, and that's not always an easy question to answer. Um, uh, more recently there was an experience that I had, uh, with one of my managers, um, in, at a company previous where they would basically say, uh, whenever I would use bigger words, like, you know, an expanded vernacular than just like, Hey, how's it going? Like maybe I'll, I'll go and sprinkle some words that better illustrate what I'm saying. And he would kind of make comments like, Oh, this is like, Oh, those are big words. And it's like, you know, to a certain extent, it's like, okay. Um, you know, I, it's not a word that you use very often, but at the same time, am I not capable of saying those words, you know, like, do you not believe me capable of using, uh, an expanded vernacular, like, and it's, and it's, uh, it's not always easy to even like broach those subjects. Um, and I found that a lot of times it's, um, you know, the, those implicit biases, generally speaking, I don't like to go and say, Oh, it is the person's fault. And they, they likely, they just don't know. Um, I'd like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Cause that ends up, uh, more often than not, 
um, contributing to a positive conversation about it of improvement rather than necessarily being like, Hey, you know, you're like going in and throwing labels like, Hey, you're racist. Hey, you're, you're, you're this, like, you know, likely that's not the person's intention. Um, and I think, uh, the discussion aspect of it is super important. Um, I'm kind of jumping all over the place a little bit, but generally speaking, yeah, like that's kind of my, my thoughts on it. Um, where it, it, it requires a conversation, I'd say. So how do you think we can make having that conversation easier? Because I know from the previous case that I mentioned, that was one of the, the um, what, how can I put it? It was one of the challenges, um, talking about it. Um, there was there was not a lot of support and it, that it didn't feel like you could you could openly talk about this. Um, she thankfully lost. I heard at a company where that is not that much of a problem anymore, and, and it's actually encouraged. Um, oh well, that's good. Have you had experience, maybe I don't know, anywhere that you've worked or interacted, maybe at university even, um, where you found that people have, you know, made this like a thing where they've said like. Whenever you feel this, this is the, the venue, the avenue that you, where you bring this up and where we can talk about this. Because I think the tricky thing with implicit bias is that, like you said, oftentimes the person might not even know that what they're saying is making something in you feel uncomfortable or, um, you know, not good about yourself. So how do we bring that to the fore? How do we allow those conversations to happen without it turning into a confrontational thing? And that's a hard question, right. but so I think it starts with knowing what is like confrontational and non-confrontational language. Um, there was a really great book that uh, like one of the other software engineers that I network with uh, showed me um, uh, non-violent communication. Um, I, I forget who exactly wrote the book, but it was very informative in terms of like there are so many things that you might. Um, like bring up like that may or may not be considered like confrontational, like, like the, just the way that you say you bring up an, an issue might be the difference between someone taking that personally and someone taking that as a, a point of improvement. And and I think it, there are so many other factors that go into it, you know, like, uh, like whether or not you guys are part of this same culture, different cultures, like, um, an example might be just, uh, with a recent networking opportunity I had, um, like I was the only non, uh, I was the only American at that kind of event. Uh, everybody else was kind of from Europe and from Africa and all these different places and talking to them was very interesting because, you know, like they were very excited to talk with me. I was very excited to talk with them, but there were some times when they would say things that it would be like, huh? Like, like the, 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 sometimes with the way that we talk in the United States, we're not necessarily as direct as we would, uh, like to be. Um, so like just someone very directly saying, saying something to me, like it's appreciated. I love it. I, I think it's great, but it's like, you know, getting the accustomed to the different kinds of ways that people, uh, speak and what kind of cultural norms there are. I, I think that's one huge aspect of it. Um, from there, 
I really think that, um, that nonviolent communication is an important piece. Um, and then really just, uh, identifying it as, Hey, like really talk about it less from, Hey, this person is doing something wrong and more of, Hey, this is how I'm feeling right now. You know, I, I want to understand how we can maybe improve like this kind of relationship that we have. Um, and putting it from a perspective of we, right? Like it's not on the person necessarily to go and, uh, learn. Cause a lot of times if they just don't know that that's the case, like there's, there's a lot of instances where, you know, just bringing that up for the first time may be what opens their eyes and be, they're like, Oh, <laughs> like, I am so sorry that I did that to you. Um, and you know, you can have that discussion and move forward in a positive manner. Um, but definitely bringing it up in a constructive way of like, Hey, you know, I really appreciate the kind of feedback. Like, let's say it's a uh, manager and you are somebody who is, you know, experiencing that kind of implicit bias from your manager. Like my example, somebody who, who is like talking to me as if I don't, can't use kind of higher level vocabulary, like, you know, like just going in and like sending some time aside and being like, Hey, I, I feel like those comments that you made about, uh, my, you know, big words are, are kind of hurtful, you know, like, um, alternatively, maybe framing it from the perspective of like, Hey, we, you know, I, you know, those, those comments are hurtful. How, you know, why, why do you feel the need to say that? You know, like understanding the other person's perspective, I think is also a big component of it because it may be that they think that it's like, Oh, well, you know, that's the way my parents acted with me. Whenever I said big words, like they'd be like, Oh, those are big words. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. and like for them in their family, it means something, but for us outside, maybe it means something different. You, you, you really never know until you have that conversation. So uh, a lot of times it's, navigating that and, and just taking it with the idea of neither of you are really trying to be malicious about things. We're, we're just trying to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. If, if we can approach it from that perspective, really a lot of the other things kind of fall in line. Um, because at the very least you have two solution oriented people that are going to accomplish this kind of uh, improvement in in the relationship between you two, as yeah. opposed to just coming at it from, oh, you're a racist. I can't believe that you would say something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, not necessarily. Sure, maybe those labels will make you feel better when you say them, but that that, that won't necessarily solve the problem because yeah. a lot of times, if people get confronted like that, they'll just like retreat and kind of maybe double down because they don't believe that they're being that way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different reactions to, to that, as opposed to a more constructive and positive approach. Generally speaking, people are more willing to come to the table and meet you halfway. Yeah, no, for sure. That's really good advice. Um, so to switch to a different topic that's along the similar lines, but talking about the other side of the things, um, during our uh, conversation on polywork i mentioned like well, i also want to talk about the good parts and um you weren't exactly sure what i meant by that so um and by the way that is that is something that i found interesting uh in written language we often write from our perspective and we use uh maybe cultural phrases that we understand not thinking what the person who's reading this might 
uh, read from that. Um, and it's been really interesting on one of the projects we do as part of the Mycelium Network. Um, there's quite a lot of written um, content uh, involved there. And we have people from like Brazil and places like that who's also involved in it. And there's one particular person, Rafael, that I've also spoken to on the podcast previously, who's like, he's amazing at the feedback he gives and the way he does it. He's just really good at it. But he's like pointed out some things in the written context where he's like, I'm not exactly sure what you mean here. Did you mean this or did you mean this thing? And that has opened my eyes incredibly to a lot of things that we don't necessarily think about. And it's highlighted how important it is to have this diversity within a team, within a community, because they bring out the best in thing. Because now that content is so much more accessible to a much wider audience because you've been much more clear about what you're actually trying to say in this paragraph or in this sentence. So with that in mind, what I meant with the good parts um, is like some of the things like the framework wars and some of these like struggles we still have in the workplace and with diversity and talking and how do we talk about the difficult things in a productive manner. Um, the good parts for me is then when it comes down to making things, like what is it about the tech industry that made you think like, hmm, you know what, I think I'm interested in what, what that, what, I want to learn more about what that is. And as you learned more, something about it piqued your interest and you were like, yeah, I think I want to do this for my career. So that is the good part. It's like, what is, what were those things about the tech industry that, that got you to say, yeah, this is what I want to do as a career? I would say one of the big things is obviously problem solving. Um, I, I love being presented some sort of challenge, some sort of feature, even some sort of bug uh, where like there's a problem that needs to be solved um, and going through the motions of like, well, what what is the current problem? Do we need additional user research to solve this problem? Like, you know, I, I love going through that process because a lot of times it, it really um, that that research is really applicable in other contexts. Like you, you don't really think about it when you go and do like just a single feature. Like maybe you want to add a, a, a chat bot or something like that to like a front facing web page, just as a random example, like, you know, now you know how to do that for the next project that you're doing and, you know, and you kind of learn some additional aspects of like, maybe you need to implement it asynchronously where now you have the ability, especially in like JavaScript to understand uh, like promises and understand awaits and like be able to work with more asynchronous data where, where each of these little experiences kind of culminate into being able to solve bigger problems. Like, and really a lot of it, you know, a lot of the problem solving is breaking down those problems, big problems into smaller problems. So with that, um, you know, being able to then equate that to experiences that you had in the past of being like, hey, well, I've solved it like four or five of these problems and I can research this fifth one. Like, you know, just being able to leverage that kind of problem solving uh, mindset on a daily basis and solve problems that really help people in the long run is a huge aspect of the good parts of the tech industry. Um, I'd say also collaboration. 
Um, I, I keep on going to community and collaboration, but really, um, I, I think you get the most out of really software building when you are able to um, leverage a design team, whether that's a UI UX team, uh, a product manager, a product owner. Um, like I, I've got a project right now where we're working on a like uh, like a CRM app for, and it's currently in alpha. We're still kind of working through some things with our initial alpha customer. Um, but we've got sales on, on deck. We've got marketing. We've got the product team, product owners for three different products in our, uh, you know, company and, and the UI, UX lead. Um, and all of us together that, that creates such an interesting, um, discussion every week and interesting, like, next steps all the time of like, Hey, this is what we actually kind of need. Um, you know, based off of our conversations with the user, based off of our conversations of what our system can handle and cannot handle. Um, you know, this is how we need to implement it. Let's go through the process of creating some of these wireframes. Let's make some higher fidelity designs. And like, I, I love that aspect of it because there's so much, uh, discussion and kind of like that, you know, where you likely don't have the full picture unless you talk to other people. Um, and that's not even including like the stakeholders of the, the actual project, like the, the companies or the clients that you're working with, where now, um, introducing them into the mix and understanding their problems that also creates such an interesting experience of collaboration, um, where everybody that you work with in the tech industry, you're, you're collaborating some way, um, it's not just like a, oh, hey, do this. Like, usually if you're on a team with a couple of developers, you are collaborating on something, whether that's going and reviewing each other's code, pair programming, whatever the case may be. Like, like I can give plenty more examples, but, you know, that, that collaboration aspect is such a big component of it that I like. And I love, I, if you can't tell, I love talking with people. So yeah, yeah. it's really uh, rewarding to be able to do that and then also leverage some technical skill to be able to um, accomplish those kind of software solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. No, I agree hundred percent. I, I, um, I love that collaborative thing as well, especially when um, you're working on a problem that everybody is passionate about, enthusiastic about, and everybody wants to see the best possible solution in the end of the day. I think that is like when you've really hit gold, so to speak. Um, I have one question that's going to kind of lead into a different thing I want you to talk about a little bit. So um, let's start with the first one, which is from everything I've read, I can see that you're really into D&D, Dungeons and Dragons. Are there, <laughs> are there any parallels that you can draw between um, the game of Dungeons and Dragons and the tech industry or, you know, working on a team? Yeah, certainly. Um, with the, so most of my experience in Dungeons and Dragons is as a, uh, game master. Uh, so a lot of it is just almost like project management, um, where, you know, you, you have a clear goal of what needs to happen, uh, this session and like, just like an overarching, Hey, the goal of this campaign is to do this. 
but then you have these smaller sessions and like you can equate those to sprints, right? Where e- each of these sprints, you're trying to accomplish something in that sprint. And some DMs are more um, like rigid and they say, hey, we're, we're not leaving until we accomplish this thing. Like that is the end of the session. For For me, it's a lot more flexible of like, hey, if the you know, if we, if we go through the motions and we, and we get to that point, great. If we get farther than that point, fantastic. If we get to a point where we're not necessarily at where I wanted to be in the story, that's okay. We'll, we'll go and, and plan better for the next one. And a lot of that is literally parallel with like, just like agile methodology, you know, um, from a player perspective, a lot of that collaboration still holds where, uh, instead you each are components of that. I agile methodology where like, you know, let's say it's a couple developers, product designer, etc., where like maybe you're the bard, you're the paladin, you're the the rogue, where each of you have skills that help in different situations. Like, you know, maybe you have to do some sort of stealth, sneak into the castle and save the princess. Um like the rogue is better suited for that. And maybe the paladin can create a distraction. Like if, if you think about it from a software perspective, like, you know, some people are better with front end technologies. Some people are better with back end technologies. Some people are better with uh very specific kind of tools. And some people are better at the people side of communication and stuff like that. Um, a lot of that holds in Dungeons and Dragons as well, where, uh, the opportunities to kind of leverage what your class is good at, um, and like are always there. And generally speaking, a, a good, uh, GM will kind of take the opportunities to highlight those same, same with like a, a good manager, you know, like, you know, your people's strengths, like you can help them with your weaknesses, but also highlight their strengths and have them play to their best, uh, role because obviously uh, a paladin maybe isn't the best person to be sneaking around in full plate armor like just as an example like you know they're they're gonna be sounding like plates that just dropped out of a like a a pantry or something like that um just like all this noise everywhere um so those are some of the parallels but a lot of the times um you, you can find a lot of uh similarities between the two and uh yeah, I, I play it enough to where I, I even have a campaign in the company that I'm currently at, Encompass, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, a lot of the people, like, it's it's me, like, I'm a developer, we've got some other people who are, like, uh, somebody from HR, a couple product managers, a release manager, like, um, all these different people who, you know, if, if we take out the D&D aspect of it and then look at the, you know, the actual team aspect of it, we've got this diverse team of individuals with different uh, experiences, different uh, specialties in the software and also in general in their career where they can leverage it. So yeah, I love that. I think that that's some of the, that's some of the things that I can think of off the top of my head. I can obviously mm-hmm. go and rant on about it all day because I love Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love that. That's wonderful. I, I love that analogies. It's really great. Um, and so that leads me into the next thing. So I had a look on your GitHub profile, and um, you have a project called Sovereign Sovereign of Chaos. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, and that sounds incredibly interesting. So I'd love you to dig into that some. And some of the things that I'm interested in is what exactly it is, how you came about to build this. And then from the larger, like, collaborative aspects, 
Um, are you open to others using this, working it, contributing back to it? And like, give us a nice overview of what this project is and what your goals are with it. Yeah, so I'll start with the naming because obviously the Sovereign of Chaos, it's like out of all the things that you can name a project, why would you name it that? Um, <laughs> uh, so that's actually a Dungeons & Dragons uh, thing, more specifically the uh, setting of Eberron. Um, so that's kind of like a, one of the settings that they've published. It's not just one setting that they have for Dungeons & Dragons and that's it. Like there's a couple published ones that Wizards of the Coast, the company that owns Dungeons & Dragons, have kind of published and then obviously people can go and bring in their own homebrew worlds. One of the worlds that I really like um, and really resonate with me is Eberron. Um, it was written by a guy named Keith Baker. Um, he's really a big uh, player with the concept of like nothing is black and white. Right. And, and again, it goes back to kind of like the same kind of concepts we've been talking about, um, today where it's not as easy as just kind of like, yes or no, or like it, it's a discussion. Eberron is kind of the same way where in a, in a lot of ways, like there are spells of like detect good and evil in Dungeons and Dragons where Keith Baker has said, Hey, if I had my way in Eberron, those wouldn't work because it's all perspective based, right? Where somebody wouldn't necessarily like, you know, just because someone is, um, you know, classified as a monstrosity in the system mechanically does not necessarily mean that they're evil. Right. And, uh, I really like that setting because of that, where there's a lot of muddled grays and it's kind of generally speaking, um, like a nor aspect to it. Um, one of the major cities in Eberron is this place called Sharn, which is this big floating like uh, metropolis. Um, kind of like I'm trying to think of an example, like very Art Deco kind of like 19, like Roaring Twenties, uh, with that mixture of like medieval fantasy and also like uh magic and then also sprinkled in with some more technology aspects fueled by magic um so that that setting really resonated with me um the sovereign of chaos is one of those uh kind of figures in the dark six of eberron um they're like um some of the uh gods that people worship in that setting uh the the traveler as he's called is the sovereign of chaos he kind of brings along um change that's kind of what his uh kind of uh what is it called the underlying concepts behind him are around like change um and really with the project i decided to name him that because i really wanted just like uh a discord bot where I could really play around with different concepts and not really have a single sort of goal and just have it be like, Hey, I want to add this feature to it. Great. Like really more of a learning experience for me than necessarily like a purpose built bot for a specific, uh, you know, user flow or something like that. Um, and that's kind of evident in the kind of features that it has. Like, um, I started small with some basic things like, uh, you know, like an eight ball, like some, like a gotcha item 
puller where like given this feed of magic items from uh like existing Dungeons and Dragons publications obviously with the open uh game license in mind um you know going and producing those magic items because sometimes in the game there are instances where somebody like you want to reward them with some sort of magic item but you don't necessarily know what to do because you weren't planning on that <laughs> they they managed to to go and do something that you want to reward them somehow but you have no idea so like maybe you think of oh i want to pull a uh, uncommon magic item um really a lot of the the features were also revolving around dungeons and dragons and trying to help with my own uh game mastering um Initiative order and skills challenges were also one thing where it kept the persistent state of the current initiative challenges or initiative uh, orders, um, where essentially that kind of means that there's some sort of combative encounter um, that is happening at that moment. Um, Same thing with skills challenges, just uh, being able to track that and having some order to uh, a more complex situation. So maybe it's not a co- uh, combat situation, but uh, a, a practical example might be, hey, you have to escape this castle. Like, you're not in combat yet, but you are also about to be arrested. Like, how how does your team navigate that? And attaching a sort of... Um, the reason why I would attach an initiative order to that is just to give the opportunity for everybody in the team to contribute because then it goes in a sequential order of turns as opposed to whoever raises their hand first and blurts out what they want to do. Um, give, gives a lot more opportunity for uh, contributions as opposed to um, not. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. With, with those features, um, that was really the kind of core concept behind it. Um, the intention was to kind of take input and, uh, provide output through a discord server, Mm -hmm. um, which discords, uh, Python API or discord Pi, like it is so useful and so easy to use, um, that it felt like, you know, these features were just flying out of my fingers (laughs) into the keyboard, into the repository. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was really exciting seeing it. And I had it on a server of about 50 people. Um, and that it was also doing like, uh, event reminders, like, uh, kind of like asynchronous stuff. Like I just started building on top of it and kind of having it be a one, one bot for everything for that server. Mm -hmm. Um, so people could go and set, uh, reminders, go in and specific events. Like maybe there was some sort of like month, every Monday we do this, um, like, you know, just sending reminders and stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think about what else off the top of my head, but um, it was just a whole bunch of features, just Discord oriented for that purpose. Just playing around and seeing what the extent of uh, the Discord Pi library could do, um, and being able to use it positively, um, like just to improve the experience on a server. Uh, so that was a lot of fun with it. I mean, um, in terms of like open source, like being able to fork it, uh, build on it. I'd say anybody that wants to can go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of the big reasons why I put it on GitHub in a public repository. Um, cause it's just built on, um, discord Pi and a couple other minor libraries that I'm pretty sure all have the same kind of licensing that it's just kind of like, Hey, go for it. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, I mean, anybody that wants to, to pull or contribute, build on that. Like a lot of the concepts are, were really helpful for me to learn. Um, especially like asynchronous handling of like messages and being able to like shard and kind of, uh, basically thread a, a bot. Um, mm-hmm. so that then it, in the event of like multiple servers trying to add this bot to it, then, you know, like how do you handle that and, and keep yeah. a data structure that makes sense for like, you know, server A shouldn't be seeing the, uh, data for server B. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you get into that even more so with like, I added like XP tracking and stuff like that as well. So every time somebody sent a message, like, you know, should that XP carry over between server to server? Those, those were the kind of questions that I had. So like, I mean, it, it was extremely beneficial to, to build and it really um, improved my knowledge of building software. So if it, it helps anybody like that sees it and wants to, to take a look or play around with discord pie and see what's capable, I'd say, go for it. Right. So do you, um, it's interesting. I, I like a lot of the features and, and a lot of them make me think like, do you foresee a machine learning aspect to this, um, being useful? Say somebody is like really like dug into the open AI Python stuff and they're like, Hmm, I wonder if we can add some like, machine learning aspects to this thing. Is that something you'd be interested in exploring? I think so. I I think there's a lot of benefits to machine learning, um, like from a perspective of like just trying to improve our lives instead of replace people's like jobs or anything like that. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of aspects where we, we can improve people's lives with it. Um, the, with discord specifically, I can see potentially, um, like being able to process and understand what, uh, what violent communication looks like, what, uh, like derogatory communication looks like. And as the, uh, you know, human like linguistics evolves, like having something that evolves with it to be able to accurately create a safe and uh, comfortable environment. Um, Mm -hmm. I can see that being very useful. Um, from the, my specific bot, um, I, I can see a lot of value in doing machine learning on how to properly build an encounter. Um, so like with every, uh, monster in Dungeons and Dragons, there is some sort of challenge rating assigned to them and different skills that they can use. Um, even in the same challenge rating, um, and like that challenge rating is from zero to uh, 30. You still have a lot of aspects where that challenge rating isn't exactly a full indicator of what, how challenging this is going to be for your party. Cause certain classes are, are, uh, you know, have different abilities that may be better suited to combat a creature than mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see from a machine learning perspective, like it might be valuable to, to take a deeper understanding of not just, the challenge ratings, but also the, the classes and being like, Hey, given these are the players that are engaging with this, this is a more realistic aspect of whether or not this, uh, encounter is easy, medium, hard, or deadly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I can see a lot of value in that as well. Cause then that creates a better experience when the, uh, GM doesn't have to worry about, uh, completely, uh, TPKing the party, which is a total party kill. Um, 
you know, or alternatively creating a big bad and like bringing that person in only to have it be completely curb stomped by the party. Cause, uh, you know, like based off of like even action economy, you could run into those types of issues where, in, where one enemy is moving for every five people that are fighting against it. Like, obviously there's just like that economy of action, like is going to create a problem. So, um, machine learning to better understand that and apply those more, uh, higher level concepts to Dungeons and Dragons and properly schedule an encounter and like create an encounter that's valuable and meaningful and kind of accomplishes what the DM is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that could be super valuable. It would be super cool if I, if I had a tool like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. I'm fascinated about how, how we can use these new, newfound technologies and skills um, to improve our lives. Definitely. Um, I think that is the one thing that I've kind of decided to do is to, to look at it from a positive perspective. Um, there's a lot of negativity around it and I understand it, but at the same time, I'm like, it's not going anywhere. So we might as well find ways of using it effectively to improve us as a species. Maybe that's maybe a bit, uh, a bit going too far, but maybe not. Maybe it's possible, but at least like improving my day-to-day like is it any way it can make me a little bit more productive take care of some of the Mm -hmm. tdm that i don't really enjoy doing so you know can i have something that's trained to help me do these things yeah i'm trying to see it from that perspective but then keeping ethics in mind and you know is is this done like what is the potential downsides of this like keeping that in your mind but not being a complete cynic about about all of this right Um, there there's a positive aspect to it positive aspect really to anything it's just a matter of like you know especially with ai like we can find ways to incorporate it without necessarily making people's lives worse i I agree 100 percent. yeah yeah for sure so with everything that you've experienced in your time in tech um for people just getting into the industry whether that is young folks getting into it like because just straight out of school or out of university or whether it's people in different stages of their lives deciding to switch careers. Like, do you have any like advice for these people? Like what, what should they think about? Keep in mind when they're just getting into this, set some expectations. That's more, um, sane than some of the, some of the expectations that are sometimes thrown out there when it comes to tech. Breaking the problem into smaller chunks, like just in general, um, it's really easy to be, uh, intimidated by wanting to learn how to program. Um, I have a, c- a couple people who have all reached out, even in my current company, where they're like, hey, I really want to learn how to program. I want to get to the point of developer. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'd be happy to, to help. Like if you have some sort of learning and you're trying to understand how something works or even learn how some of the things work more uh, deeply in our company, like I'd, I'd be happy to do that. And like... It seems like a lot of times people get uh, intimidated by the daunting task that is learning programming because uh, it seems like such a big mountain for a lot of people. Um, and really, you only get up that mountain through several smaller steps, right? Like, um, you know, even software building, you know, you break those problems down. We've I kind of mentioned that before. It's the same thing with learning software. Like, maybe 
you want to be a front end developer or something like that. Like, you know, there, there are smaller components to what that is. Like maybe you want to learn the core, you break that problem from front end developer and be like, well, no, actually that means that I need to learn HTML. I need to learn CSS. I need to learn JavaScript. I need to learn react. I need to learn some sort of stack of like maybe the lamp stack or the, the Mern stack or something like that. Like break that problem down and be like, okay, well now I need to learn, like Mongo, like Node.js, React, okay, and then break that problem down and be like, cool, I want to learn the core concepts, I want to get a pro- uh, a project going for Node.js, like, here's my kind of goal with this learning to be able to accomplish this. And, and really breaking that problem down, like, either if you're trying to learn on your own or in uh, academia, it's really helpful. Um, and it will only help you in kind of the crazy projects that they kind of throw at you in academia as well. Um, I had a class, um, I went to Northern Arizona university and, uh, one of the professors ran a course for operating systems where essentially we were building our own operating system simulator in C. Um, and that was really, it, uh, one of the points where I started, really breaking down problems in the smaller chunks, uh, in a lot of ways, because I had to, um, cause he would just be like, Hey, I want you to implement all these different, uh, scheduling algorithms. I like shortest job first, first, first in, first out, like, and it's like, Oh God, I have two weeks to do this. And like my last project didn't do so well. So it's like, I've got to make those changes. I've got to improve those. And then I've got to go and build the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's once I start understanding like how to break those problems down, that really helped me to be able to um, navigate challenges in, in the tech industry where mm-hmm. instead of seeing it as this big project, now I'm like, okay, these are the kind of smaller steps and then even smaller steps. And then this is what I can do right now. And this is kind of the process to go from point A to point B to point C however many other letters that it takes to get to the end goal. Yeah, um, yeah. So I would say that's my big advice. Break, break the problem into smaller chunks. Break the um, the learning of tech and the um, kind of professional development into smaller chunks and just take it in stride, really. Because um, you, you may not think that you're really making a lot of progress, but if you look back on yourself even a month after where you were today, like chances are you've learned a lot more than you think you have. Um, You've probably implemented something that you didn't think that you were able to do. And you look back and you're like, wow, it, it it magnifies so much more Mm -hmm. in the context of years of uh, experience to where like really, you know, the, the only way you're going to get through that is not by thinking about it from the perspective of like, Hey, I want to get here in 10 years (laughs) Let, let's break this problem down. Um, cause then at the very least, those are actionable steps that your brain can actually process and be able to, to navigate successfully. Yeah. That's great advice. And yeah, I totally agree. I'm, I often break it down right down to what is the first variable I need to keep, maybe <laughs> keep some state. Okay, cool. So now how do I set the state? How do I update the state? So you kind of started really from, from that little, tiny variable that then builds out and out and out into into solving the bigger solution. Um, so in closing, um, 
you've shared like many of your interests but one other one that i know that you have is you're a tattoo enthusiast and you're the second person in a week that i've spoken to that has the same uh, interest and the one thing that i always enjoy about it is learning about the stories behind the tattoos because often they're super interesting so is there any particular tattoo that you have that has a story or special meaning to you behind it that you're willing to share with the community Oh yeah, totally. Um, so I kind of have my whole arm here, like my right arm kind of filled up with tattoos. Still need to finish it up. Like there's a couple of blank spaces and I'd like to get my tattoo artist to actually fill it in and make it feel like a completed like uh, sleeve. Um, but there's one right here. Um, if you can see that one. Um, so for audio purposes I'll, I'll go and describe it so essentially it's kind of a dragon face um kind of in um like black and and white uh lots of shading in it as well as some aspects of red in the eyes um mm -hmm. the dragon itself is from a, a game called monster hunter um monster hunter world to be specifically or to be specific sorry mm -hmm. um the What's this is the final boss of the the expansion uh, Iceborne. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, Monster Hunter really is like similar to the experiences that I've had, where you are taking things one hunt at a time, and like you're like, wow, this game is really hard. Like I'm not sure if this is necessarily like great. Like sometimes it's not the easiest game to play, especially depending on what kind of weapon you choose to play that game. Like whether it's a great sword, uh, like a gun lance or something like that. There's like 16 different weapons, but, um, this was actually my first tattoo. Um, and the reason why I got it was mainly it was something bold. I, I wanted to, have a piece on my body that was uh bold when people saw it they they were like whoa like it's an eye catcher immediately people are like whoa that is so cool can i take a look at that um it's a little bit vain but um at the same time the the other aspect of it it was really my first tattoo and i was kind of on the fence for a while about getting tattoos mm -hmm. um a lot of my uh, upbringing was kind of like, oh no, well, your body is a temple, you know, all mm -hmm. this sort of Christian values associated with that. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately getting out and actually exploring the world myself and understanding the world and perceiving it myself, that really opened my eyes to like, well, you know, yeah, my body is a temple. I should take care of it. But, you know, I it's my choice what I get to decorate it, my temple with. You yeah, know, yeah. like if I, mm -hmm. um, you know, just to kind of put it in that temple perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, so really with that, I like monster hunter is a game that I hold very near and dear to my heart. Um, and Sharish Valda itself, it's kind of like this world ending worm, uh, like this kind of, and the, the way it's presented in the game is this kind of like almost, uh, omniscient like dragon, that is just like constantly like there's a point once you start fighting in in like the third phase where its eyes open up and it's the those same stark kind of red eyes except the eyes are not tracking your player in the game they are tracking you the camera perspective oh, so regardless shit. of where you're hitting and stuff that that camera um 
you know, it creates this element of like the Shara knows what's going on almost, oh, you know, right. like knows what's, what, what this is, what this is versus, you know, like just being in that game, it kind of creates this kind of fourth wall break of this dragon that is so wise and intelligent that it can see beyond that perspective and and yeah. generally speaking that that kind of aspect of wisdom and and stuff like that is also a big component of why i chose that monster mm-hmm. out of all the monsters because i could have chosen like the the cover art dragon or something like that mm-hmm. um you know i could have chosen any anything but really sharish fall that really resonated with me that's lovely yeah that's great i knew there was a story <laughs> but uh <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, so much. You paint such beautiful pictures with your words. Um, really. Um, I really enjoyed listening to you talk. Um, I hope this was a good experience. I know this was your first podcast. Um, it was definitely great for me. So thank you so much for joining. Um, and I wish you all, all of the success in your future. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, um, really, I, I, if you can't tell, I love talking with people. I love hearing about your own experiences as well. So, you know, um, really glad to be on and, uh, yeah, hopefully we talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Have a lovely rest of your day and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mycenaean Network podcast. If you're not already, please subscribe, store, and leave a review for us in your podcatcher of choice. This helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Network Mycelium and join the community on Discord. All the links are available in the show notes.